You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Mary Beth Franklin on the Earn and Invest podcast. Many of us come to personal finance yearning for freedom and to escape a life we didn't want to feel trapped in. I don't need to rehash my story of burning out in medicine. You all have heard that enough. But understanding my finances, having the vocabulary to discuss things like safe withdrawal rates allowed me to start making the precious calculations building the detailed spreadsheets that would allow me to contemplate such things as financial independence and, dare I say, retirement. Starting in the Financial Independence Retire Early community, I was especially worried about every single penny that would be coming in and everyone that would be going out. You know what I, as well as many of those around me, spent absolutely no time thinking about? Social Security. I think half of us assume that it won't exist by the time we reach the appropriate age. The other half just completely ignore it. The truth is, there is danger in both viewpoints. Let's dig into it. Today, we talk Social Security 101 with retirement expert Mary Beth Franklin. Mary Beth Franklin is a contributing editor at Investment News, specializing in Social Security, Medicare, and Retirement Income. She's been a financial journalist for more than 40 years, covering everything from federal budget and tax policies as a Capitol Hill reporter to consumer finances as a writer and editor at Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine. Mary Beth became a certified financial planner in 2015 and is the author of Maximizing Social Security Benefits and host of the Retirement Repair Shop podcast. Mary Beth Franklin, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start with the elephant in the room. We often hear about Social Security insolvency in the future. Like I said, a lot of people in the financial independence movement think it won't even be around. How likely is that? Will most people likely get at least some Social Security? Absolutely. Social Security will be there for current and future retirees, it may look a little bit different in the future. The thing people have to understand is a bit of the history. It goes back to 1935 when the Social Security Act was signed into law by uh, President FDR. And one of the motivations behind that was America was in the midst of the Great Depression, enormous unemployment, and there was essentially no sort of pension or retirement system aside from a few companies. So people who had jobs held on to them. 
And frankly, younger people needed jobs. And one way to get the older people out of the workforce was to create some sort of retirement safety net, which became Social Security. The idea at the time was we are going to take a very small percentage of your paycheck and set it aside earmarked for this future benefit known as Social Security. And frankly, the people that were in the early years of the system got a gravy deal. They paid very little into the system and got lots of money out. Now, that's one of the challenges of Social Security. It's what they call a pay-as-you-go system. We, the current workers, pay what are called FICA taxes, Federal Insurance Contribution Act, payroll taxes that fund Social Security for current retirees. It is not going into like a little IRA for our future benefit. It's today's workers pay the benefits of today's retirees. And, you know, for generations that worked because we had bigger and bigger generations. Look at the baby boomers. Well, guess what? There are more boomers than Gen Xers. And as the boomers are retiring, we now have fewer workers supporting retirees. It's about three workers to one. Way back in the beginning, it was 35 workers to one. So you can see where the finances are a bit out of kilter. And there are things Congress can do to fix it going forward. Traditionally, Congress has not cut benefits for current or near retirees. They tend to make changes that are phased in over years or decades. So things can be fixed in the future. But frankly, the closer we get to what they call trust fund insolvency, which is basically the excess reserves we have been relying on to help fund current Social Security benefit, If that happens in the next 10 years and Congress does nothing, it does not mean Social Security is bankrupt. It means there would be enough ongoing payroll taxes to pay about 80% of promised benefits, which, frankly, no one's going to be happy about, but it's not like you'd get zero. I mean, there's so many good points you just brought up just in that short history. One is that people totally misunderstand this idea that they think that it is giving to the poor, right? That this is some kind of charity. But as you mentioned, we actually pay into Social Security and therefore it becomes a benefit just like any pension plan. It gets paid in over time and then it gets paid out later. The other interesting point about that too is this idea of insolvency, the way we talk about it, is not zero. It's meaning that the money coming in will no longer give excess or maybe even support the current level of benefits. But we don't talk about this a lot. And I've discussed this with Mark Miller before, who's uh, written a book about retirement not that long ago. We never also talk about how that money is being held by the government. I I expect a lot of it is in very low yielding returns type investments. And so one thing that we don't often talk about is that the government could be allowed to be more aggressive with the way it invests that money that it's holding in Social Security. And even the possibility of higher returns may fix some of these problems. That's certainly one possibility. By law, Social Security reserves, the trust funds, can only be invested in these specially issued government securities that are extremely safe, but very low yielding, about 2% on average. So think about the past years when average stock market returns were more in the 10% range. That's a lot of 
lost potential income. However, the focus was this was more like a pension. It had to be secure. There couldn't be this risk involved that the money might not be there. But certainly, perhaps a portion could be carved out that would be uh, more of a growth portfolio to um, juice some of these returns. So that's one possibility. There are certainly other things that we could talk about. Um, right now, the full retirement age is 67 for people born in 1960 or later, who I imagine are a lot of your listeners. Now, that may not sound weird to you, but back in 1983, the last time we had major Social Security reform, the full retirement age was 65. And when this bipartisan committee that recommended Social Security reforms to Congress said, let's gradually raise the full retirement age by two years, and spread this over a 40-year period, people were crazy. What do you mean you're going to raise the full retirement age to 67? Well, we're there now pretty much, and most people forgot that it was ever 65. That's a classic case of if you give people long enough to adjust, decades rather than months or years, people can adapt to almost anything. What would be some other changes? Possibly the tax rate we pay could change. Right now, employees and employers each pay 6.2%, a total of 12.4% towards funding Social Security. And that's up to a maximal wage base. Right now, in 2023, we pay that 6.2% on the first $160,000. $200. If you make more than that, you do not pay FICA taxes on the excess amount to support Social Security. You do pay a very small portion of FICA taxes on every dollar you earn um, towards Medicare. So one of the problems, going back to the history lesson in 1983, that bipartisan commission, which by the way, was headed by a guy that most people had never heard of back then, but you might know his name, Alan Greenspan. Long before he was the famous chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, he was the chair of this bipartisan commission. And the Greenspan Commission did a lot of really smart things back in 1983 when Social Security was actually in jeopardy of not being able to pay full benefits. One of the things they said was, as long as 90% of U.S. wages are covered for FICA purposes, Social Security will never run out of money. The problem is with increasing wage inequality, there are so many people making so much more than our current taxable wage base that are not paying FICA taxes on those excess earnings that only about 83% of U.S. wages are currently being taxed for FICA purposes. If we let it float back up to that 90% range, we'd be talking FICA taxes on to about $250,000 of, of earnings. That's probably not palatable to a lot of people, but you can see where this is one possible lever. Do we gradually raise the full retirement age even higher? Do we increase the tax rate? Do we take the cap off the taxable wage base? Do we change how benefits are 
tied to inflation? Do we change the actual benefit formula itself? And as you pointed out at the top of this podcast, do we allow the Social Security trust funds or some sort of financing mechanism be invested in the stock market that would get some higher returns? There's lots of possibilities here. The big challenge is we have to get started because the longer we wait, the more dramatic the changes will have to be and perhaps more difficult they will be to adjust to. So as we've been talking about, there's a number of misconceptions when it comes to Social Security, right? We talked about this idea that it's a charity and clearly it isn't. We pay into it. This idea that all of a sudden it's going to be insolvent and unfixable and no one's going to get any. And and clearly that's probably not the case. Why is Social Security so emotionally fraught and why don't the majority of people understand it? I mean, it just hits me. It's like one of those things that seems like a black box to a lot of us who are going to have to deal with this at some point in our life. I think a lot of it is age related. When you're in your 20s and having your first job, you look at that paycheck stub and say, who is Mr. FICA and why is he taking money out of my paycheck? (laughs) And then you probably forget about it. Oh, okay. it's, It's paying my grandparents social security. That's great. And when you look at your paycheck stub, which I encourage every worker to do, it's filled with important information. How much uh, am I paying in FICA taxes? How much am I paying in federal income taxes? How much am I paying in state income taxes if I live in one of the many states with a state income tax? How much am I paying for my health insurance through my job or contributing to my 401k plan? All these are important pieces of information, but it gets muddled. And as you said, a lot of people just don't think about Social Security. But as you get older, perhaps into your 50s and uh, maybe 60s for some people saying, wow, I really need to think about retirement. How do I make this work? And I try to explain to people that retirement income is like a puzzle. You know, in the old days, we had this image of what they called the three-legged stool of retirement security. That old concept was one leg of the stool was Social Security. One leg of the stool was your pension from your employers, and one leg was your personal savings. Well, as we know, pensions are history for most people. Personal savings are often inadequate. So you got two wobbly legs there. And Social Security has some long-term financing problems. So we have gone from this nice, solid three-legged stool to essentially a pogo stick, which is not (laughs) a great way to think of retirement income. So I think of people um, creating a different image. Let's look at a pyramid, a nice, solid pyramid. And the base of that pyramid for most people is Social Security. It will be there in the future. On top of that Social Security layer, for most people, will be some sort of retirement savings, your 401k, your IRA, your 403b if you're in the public sector, something like that. In the past, maybe Social Security and that retirement savings level were enough to get you through retirement. But frankly, as a doctor, you know more than anyone, people are living so much longer. The the big challenge here is longevity. We might live longer in retirement than we ever did in our working career. So perhaps those first two layers of Social Security and retirement savings may not be enough to sustain us 
in a retirement that could last maybe 30 years or more. So where do we look at other levers to create income in retirement? Now, for many American homeowners, they have more equity tied up in their home than they have a balance in their 401k plan. So let's look at creative ways of how we tap some of that home equity we've built up over the years. For some people, it's selling the big family home, moving into something cheaper, maybe in a a different part of the country, and banking the difference. Other people may take out a traditional home equity loan, which is fine until you have to start paying it back, which can be tough in retirement. That's why more and more people are talking about reverse mortgages, where basically the lender pays you and no repayment is due until you leave that home permanently or die and your estate pays it off. The key is that money from a reverse mortgage is tax-free and may become an interesting financial planning tool in retirement in the future. For other people, part-time work. How many retirees do you know that are driving for Uber? They like the social connection. They like the additional income. And money that you have coming in from a job in retirement is money that you don't have to tap from your retirement savings, allowing it more time to grow. On top of that pyramid, we've got Social Security. We have retirement savings. We have home equity. We have part-time work. The top of that pyramid might be everything else. Maybe you had a rental property with income. Maybe you received some sort of inheritance from your parents. Maybe you had a settlement in a divorce. Everybody's retirement income looks different. Now, the challenge is how do we tap that money in the most tax-efficient way in a manner that's going to last us the rest of our lives no matter how long we live? And that's where I think at least consulting a financial professional, even if it's not an ongoing relationship, but at least a pre-retirement, how am I doing? And maybe a checkup from time to time, am I still on track, can be enormously helpful for a lot of people. Because while saving for retirement can be difficult to create that discipline, all right, X amount of money is coming out of my paycheck every month, I'm going to save it taking that money out in retirement is a lot harder because really there are no universal rules here. How much can I take out without running out of money before my life ends? So clearly social security is a huge part of that base of that pyramid, as well as some of those other options you were talking about, like personal investments, home equity, et cetera. Because I feel Social Security is very opaque for many people, let's get to some of the basics. First and foremost, how is the size of the benefit calculated? I think people get very confused about how much they're going to get and why. Great question. Social Security bases your monthly benefit on your average lifetime earnings and when you first claim benefits. So your average lifetime earnings, according to Social Security, are the 35 highest years of earnings. So maybe you work 40 years. That means the lowest earning five years when you're flipping burgers at McDonald's go away. And it's just based on your top 35 years. And then Social Security applies a formula to your average monthly benefit to come up with 
how much is your full retirement age amount? If you waited till your full retirement age, if it's 67, you waited to 67 to claim, you get 100% of those promised benefits that you have worked so hard for and paid so much for in the form of FICA taxes. Now, yes, you can claim benefits earlier if you like. You can claim benefits earlier at age 62. But if your full retirement age is 67 and you claim five years early at 62, your benefits are going to be reduced by 30% for the rest of your life. Now, in some cases, that may be an appropriate decision. You're ill and don't have a particularly long life expectancy, or you lost your job and you need the money. Those are two really good reasons to claim benefits early. But if you can afford to wait, until at least your full retirement age, you're going to get your full benefit, even if you continue to work. Because what many people don't realize is if you claim benefits early and continue to have earnings from a job or self-employment, not only will your benefits be reduced for claiming early, but if you make too much money, which is about $22,000 a year, now you're going to temporarily lose some or possibly all of your Social Security benefits. Once you get to your full retirement age, Social Security recalculates your benefits to say, hey, I know you lost about 24 months of benefits because you earned too much money. So now that you reach your full retirement age, we're going to restore those in the form of larger monthly benefits going forward. So my number one rule is, hey, if you plan to keep working, don't claim early. It's just not worth it. Wait till your full retirement age when those earnings restrictions go away. You can get your full benefits even if you continue to work. But the big payoff for people who are healthy enough and wealthy enough to wait is you may want to wait up until age 70 to claim the biggest benefit possible. Because every year you postpone claiming beyond your full retirement age up until age 70, you earn an extra 8% per year. So again, if your full retirement age is 67, you wait an extra three years to age 70, that's an extra 24% on top of your full retirement age benefit. And here's the mind-blowing statistic. The difference between claiming reduced benefits at the earliest age of 62 versus maximum benefits at age 70 means a 76% increase in your monthly Social Security benefits for the rest of your life. Now, as a certified financial planner, there is no other investment I can suggest that is guaranteed to increase by 76% over basically investing eight years of your life. Help me understand this. So you mentioned kind of three different time periods, right? There's when you first can claim social security, right? I think it's 62. There's retirement age. You were mentioning 67 for retirement age. And then there's waiting to the last possible, which is 70. Correct. My understanding is originally when these rules were made, the idea was to make everyone whole. In other words, if you had to claim at 62, you would then be collecting social security longer. So in a sense, you'd be getting a smaller benefit for a longer period of time. Whereas if you were able to wait to 67 or even to the longest 70, you'd be getting a much higher benefit, but because you were collecting for less years, the idea I believe eventually was to try to generally make things whole for most people, but that maybe isn't the case anymore, or maybe because of life expectancies. Well, it social security is 
actuarially fair whether you collect a smaller benefit early or a bigger benefit later, as long as you live to average life expectancy. But the longer you live, the better off you would have been to wait until an older age so that um, over your lifetime, you could collect more. Now, certainly not everyone should wait until age 70. I do encourage married couples to have at least one spouse wait until age 70. And here's my thinking. If you have one spouse who tends to be the higher earner, who traditionally is the husband, who traditionally is going to die first, if you have that husband wait until age 70 to claim the maximum retirement benefit possible so that while the husband and wife are still alive, the husband's got this real big benefit. And the wife, frankly, could go ahead and collect benefits early if she's not working or at her full retirement age if she is. And so now they have these two Social Security benefits while they are both alive. If the husband dies first, which, again, is actuarially likely, the wife is now going to step up to a survivor benefit worth 100% of what her late husband was collecting and her smaller retirement benefit goes away. So this is a great way for married couples to essentially hedge their bets. It doesn't always work out that way. Certainly, you know, the wife might have died first. And since her benefit's smaller, the husband's not going to get her survivor benefit because his benefit's bigger. But generally, with your typical married couple, this is a good strategy for maximizing Social Security benefit over their two lifetimes. And we talk about break-even ages. How long do you have to live to make this decision worthwhile to wait? Well, when you're talking one person, the difference between claiming at age 62 versus your full retirement age is, yeah, frankly, you have to live to about 78 to make that decision worthwhile that at any point, 78 beyond, you would have collected more over your lifetime. But that's still less than average life expectancy, which is about 85. The difference between claiming at 62 and 70, yeah, you have to live to about 83, still less than average life expectancy. But here's the key for married couples. You are essentially spreading that break-even age over two lifetimes because it's likely that the remaining spouse is going to collect a survivor benefit. I think what you're getting to also helps us understand why Social Security is so complicated. But one message for the people who are interested in financial independence retire early, who are talking about retiring in their 30s or 40s, you do have to realize that your 35 years where they're calculating your average benefit from, you're going to have lots of zeros in there if you're not making any income. So just something to keep in mind. And that's two very good points there, Jordan. One is that Social Security always divides by 35. If you only worked 20 years, that means there's 15 zeros in your equation. So that means your average lifetime earnings are going to be lower when they apply this formula. And when you look at your estimated benefit statement, which I encourage everyone to do by signing up for their own personal account at ssa.gov, one, it shows you how much you are paying in FICA taxes each year, which I think is a great incentive to maximize your benefits. It also shows you what your estimated benefit would be at 62, full retirement age, and 70. 
but it assumes that you continue earning at approximately your current earnings level through your full retirement age. If you stop working at 70, that estimated benefit is going to be way off because they thought you're going to keep working until 67. So if you are uh, adhering to the fire movement and, you know, good luck to you, you're saving all this money, you're retiring early, that's terrific. But don't expect to rely heavily on Social Security because your benefit will be so much smaller because you have not worked the requisite 35 years. Now, let me back up one other rule. Once you work at least 10 years and pay Social Security taxes for at least 10 years, you are eligible for Social Security. That doesn't tell you how much you'll get, though. That's based on these top 35 years of earnings and the age when you first claim it. We are talking to Mary Beth Franklin. She's a contributing editor at Investment News, specializes in Social Security, Medicare, and Retirement Income. And we are talking Social Security 101. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, if you're like me, you thought at one point in your life that having enough money would solve all of your problems. And guess what? It didn't for me, and it probably isn't for you. But you know what helps quite a bit? Therapy. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It definitely did for me, and when I used BetterHelp, I found that I was learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowered me to be the best version of myself, and it's not for just those people who've experienced major trauma. You might be like me. Maybe you got to the point where financially you were successful and yet you still found that life's problems hadn't been all solved. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-A-R-N. We're returning with Mary Beth Franklin. She became a certified financial planner in 2015 and is the author of Maximizing Social Security Benefits and host of the Retirement Repair Shop podcast. 
Mary Beth, the other thing about the conversation from before the break that really interests me is, you know, you mentioned survivor benefits, and I think people don't realize that Social Security is not just one thing, but many things. It's a disability benefit and a survivor benefit. Talk about some of the other roles it plays as opposed to just a lot of people think, oh, I have to think about 62 versus full retirement age versus 70. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because it fulfills some other roles. Absolutely. Social Security is really a three-pronged system. You pay these taxes in during your working career with the assumption you're going to live to a ripe old age and claim benefits at retirement. But what happens if you become injured or terminally ill before you reach retirement age? Does that mean you get nothing? No, it's quite possible you would be eligible for Social Security disability insurance if you are unable to work before that early retirement age of 62. Social Security disability is different in that it's approved on a case-by-case basis. So maybe you've gotten injured on the job and you can't work. You apply for Social Security disability benefits, and it can be a long process. The application process can take up to two years. There's such a backlog. But if you're approved, you will get a Social Security disability, and it will be backdated to when you're actually disabled, And if you have a spouse or minor children, they may be eligible for benefits as well. But most people think of Social Security as a retirement benefit. I paid into this system. I retire at 66, 67, whatever my full retirement age is. And now I get a monthly benefit to supplement my other retirement income. It was never designed, even back in 1935, as the sole source of retirement income. Well, here I am, I'm retired, I'm getting a benefit, uh, I'm married, and I die. Does that mean my spouse is stuck losing my benefit? Well, no, if my benefit was the larger of the two amounts, my surviving spouse is now going to step up to a survivor benefit and her smaller retirement benefit goes away. So it's three things, it's disability insurance, It's retirement, or think of it as a pension, and it's essentially life insurance for the spouse or minor children left behind. The thing I like to stress to people is that Social Security retirement benefits and Social Security survivor benefits are essentially two different pots of money. And you may be able, you may be entitled to both because you have worked your whole life. So you earned your own retirement benefit and you're married to someone who dies and their social security benefit is bigger than yours. You now may be able to switch to a bigger survivor benefit. And when it comes to strategy in financial planning, the, the main idea is you want the biggest benefit to last the rest of your life. So if I am entitled to a retirement benefit and a survivor benefit, now I have to think about what's the best time to claim them. So let me give you two examples. Let's say husband and wife, husband's a bigger earner, wife has worked, has her own social security benefit, but it's smaller than his and he dies. So now I'm the widow, I'm the surviving spouse. I have my potentially my own retirement benefit and a survivor benefit. I'm 62 years old and I'm not working. 
maybe I want to claim my own smaller retirement benefit now at 62. And I'm not working, so there's no earnings test. And even though my retirement benefit is going to be permanently reduced because I've claimed it early before my full retirement age, that doesn't matter. Because once I get to my full retirement age, I am now going to switch to my full survivor benefits worth 100% of what my late husband was collecting when he died or was entitled to collect if he died before claiming. And that bigger benefit, that's what I'm going to get the rest of my life. But let's turn this around. Maybe I've got a business executive. He's working. He's making a lot of money. He lost his wife to breast cancer in her 40s. He's also entitled to a survivor benefit. But that survivor benefit is probably smaller than his own retirement benefit. And what I would tell him to do is wait until his full retirement age when earnings restrictions going away And when survivor benefits are worth the maximum amount at your full retirement age, he could then collect this survivor benefit, even if he continues to work. And in the meantime, his own retirement benefit continues to grow by 8% a year up until age 70. Now, that 8% a year only applies to a worker's own retirement benefit not a survivor benefit. So when he gets to age 70, he is now going to switch to his maximum retirement benefit. And that's the amount he will get for the rest of his life. You know, it's funny because every time you mentioned husband or wife, I thought in my mind, or ex-husband and ex-wife, people don't realize that even if you've been divorced, that doesn't mean you might not be entitled to some of these benefits. Actually, talking about benefits for divorced spouses is my favorite part of Social (laughs) Security. Now, doesn't apply to me personally. I have uh, my husband and I had celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary this year, but I have two really good girlfriends who were both married nine and a half years. And apparently, their divorce attorney did not know or did not tell them that you need to be married at least 10 years to be considered an eligible divorce spouse who may be able to claim Social Security benefits on an ex. So I tell everyone, the one thing you need to remember is there must be at least a decade between I do and I don't. If your marriage is falling apart in years eight and nine, string out the paperwork because (laughs) the only dates that matter to Social Security are the date you are married and the date of your final divorce decree. So if you meet that first test, you were married at least 10 years before divorcing, and you are currently single. Now, maybe you married somebody else in between, and that subsequent marriage ended in divorce or annulment or death. If you're currently single and you reach retirement age, you may be able to claim benefits on your ex's record if your benefit as a spouse is bigger than your own. Now, my retirement benefit on my own record is worth 100% of my retirement benefit if I collected at my full retirement age, less if I collected earlier. My benefit as a spouse is worth 50% of my ex's full retirement age benefit if I claim at my full retirement age, less if I claim earlier. So the equation here is, let's say at my full retirement age, which is the bigger benefit? 100% of my own benefit 
or 50% of my exits. If my benefit as an ex-spouse is larger, I am able to claim the larger of the two. Now, frankly, a lot of people who are divorced aren't going to be able to claim benefits on a living ex because their own retirement benefit is probably bigger than half of their exes. But here's the good news. If your ex should predecease you, you are now entitled to survivor benefits. And here's the refresher course. If a spousal benefit while your ex is still alive is worth 50% of his or her full retirement age benefit, and a survivor benefit after that ex has died is worth 100% of their retirement benefit, your ex is worth twice as much dead than alive. (laughs) because survivor benefits are more valuable than spousal benefits. So two other things I just want to clear up, kind of big picture ideas. Let's talk about working in Social Security. You mentioned it briefly, but can you collect Social Security if you are still working? If you claim Social Security before your full retirement age and continue to work having earnings from a job or self-employment income, now you're subject to earnings restrictions, which this year in 2023 is about $22,000 a year. So if you're going to claim benefits early, say at 62, Social Security is going to say, okay, Mr. Johnson, I see you want to claim benefits five years early before your full retirement age, and we're going to reduce those benefits by 30% because you're claiming five years early. Do you plan to keep working? And if you say yes, Social Security will say, great, how much do you expect to earn? And let's just say roughly you say, I'm going to make $42,000 a year. All right, that's roughly $20,000 over the earnings limit. And now Social Security is going to withhold a dollar in benefits for every $2 over the limit. So you're 10,000 over the limit, they're going to withhold $5,000 in benefits before they start paying you for the year. So let's say you're getting $2,500 a month in social security benefits. That means if you claim to start in January, they're gonna withhold your January and February social security benefit payment to satisfy the earnings restrictions. And then once that has been satisfied, then they'll start paying you each month for the rest of the year. But that social security earnings test restarts every January until you reach your full retirement age. In the year you reach your full retirement age, in the months before you reach that milestone, there's a much higher earnings cap. It's almost $60,000 a year. And then once you reach the full retirement age, those earnings restrictions go away. The one thing I warn people is if you plan to claim benefits early and continue to work, don't lie to Social Security. They'll eventually figure it out, might take a year or two or three until they match up your tax returns with that show's earnings histories and your social security record. And they'll say, look at that. We overpaid you by $33,000. We'd like that back right now in a lump sum. Do you really want to be in that situation in retirement that you've got to cough up this money to repay social security? So my number one rule is if you plan to keep working, don't claim benefits early, unless perhaps you're working part-time and not making more than the earnings cap. You're making $20,000 a year. Go ahead, collect benefits early and collect Social Security. 
let's talk social security and taxes. Are you taxed on social security and does that vary or is it just straightforward? <laughs> Nothing about social security is straightforward. <laughs> From the federal standpoint, uh, yes, a portion of your social security benefits are taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, depending on your income. Now, these income thresholds were set back in 1983, and they're very low and have never been indexed for inflation. So if your combined income, which is defined as your adjusted gross income, essentially everything on your tax return, plus half of your Social Security benefits, plus any tax-exempt interest you may have from um, investing in municipal bonds, if that combined income exceeds $25,000 and you're single, or $32,000 if you're married finally jointly, now a portion of your Social Security benefits are going to be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, which may be 10, 12, 22, 24%. Worst case scenario, up to 85% of your Social Security benefits could be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. Now, the uh, Senior Citizens Council, an advocacy group for retirement benefits, recently estimated that had these thresholds been indexed to inflation, instead of being $25,000 for singles, it would be closer to $75,000 today. And instead of $32,000 for married couples, it would be close to $95,000. But the reality is these thresholds are very low, and most people are going to pay income taxes on at least some of their benefits. And here's a backdoor trick almost. Every year when Social Security recipients get a cost of living adjustment, hey, that's great. In 2023, it was a whopping 8.7%. Next year in 2024, it'd be 3.2%. But every year you get a cost of living adjustment, it increases your social security benefit. And guess what? Increases the likelihood that you're going to be paying income taxes on your benefits. Well, Mary Beth, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I really had just a few reasons why I wanted to have this conversation. One is to talk about just solvency in general. So social security most likely will be there for all of us. So this idea that it won't be and it can, we can ignore it is, is just silly. That's the first point. The second point is that social security is a varied thing, right? It's not just a retirement benefit. It's also a survivorship benefit and can be a disability benefit on top of that. And last but not least, it's complicated. When you decide to start taking that benefit, whether you take your benefit or your spouse's or both at the same time or at different times. And even if you're divorced, there may be some benefits still there for you. This is something that our, as an average person, we are probably not going to learn everything we need to learn on our own. So it makes sense, as you were talking about, to check in with someone who knows what they're doing, a financial advisor or someone who deals with retirement and social security, to make sure that you are using these benefits to the best of your ability, because guess what? You paid into them. You might as well get the maximal benefit from them. I want to end the show the way in every show, which is asking you what is up next in your life and where we can find you. Tell me what is going on with you, with your podcast, with being an author. What is coming up next with Mary Beth Franklin? 
Well, I have been a journalist for more than 40 years, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast. And for the last 11 or 12, I have been writing a regular column for Investment News, which is a publication for financial advisors. And I've been focusing on Social Security, Medicare, retirement income planning. Well, I'm coming to the end of that phase of my career as I transition into retirement. What I really like doing is speaking to audiences, whether it's through podcasts like yours or mine, The Retirement Repair Shop, or in-person audiences where you and I met, for example, at the Boglehead Conference recently uh, outside of Washington, D.C. I will continue doing my presentations both online and in person because I love educating people about this very valuable benefit and most importantly, answering their individual questions. I've also um, recorded a one-hour special for public television called Social Security and You. Um, It has aired in the Baltimore and Washington markets and uh, in the Twin Cities markets in the Midwest. And it's just been re-up for the next two years. So hopefully you'll be able to watch it on one of your local public television stations. And if people want to reach out to you directly, ask a question or know more about you, what is the best way for them to reach you? Well, it's really easy. You can go to my website, marybethfranklin.com. I have lots of free articles there on basic information about Social Security. You can also email me a question. If you want help with Social Security planning, I have partnered with Social Security advisors that can give you one-on-one analysis of the best Social Security strategy for you. You can also buy my ebook, Maximizing Social Security Benefits. And if you're in a situation where you'd like to book me to come speak to your group or professional association, you can contact me through marybethfranklin.com. Well, Mary Beth Franklin, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest today. Thank you. And it was a great experience. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. I am totally fine with DIY. This idea that you can manage your own finances, that you can learn how to invest, that you don't necessarily need a financial advisor. I'm totally okay with that idea. Yet my discussion with Mary Beth Franklin makes me recognize this idea that maybe you don't need a financial advisor all the time, but you do need some experts at different junctures of your financial life in which it pays to have someone who knows what they're doing be on your side. Again, I'm not a big fan always of paid advice, but there are these moments when it is really helpful. Let's talk about three of them specifically. The first is when you're at the cusp of retiring and you're about to start your decumulation phase. I talked about this with Dana Anspa, this idea that when you're thinking about decumulation, it helps to have some paid advice, someone who has done this for a living, to look at your plan. How are you going to spend from which accounts? Are you going to convert any money from traditional IRA to Roth IRA? What are you going to do with all your retirement savings? This is one of those crucial moments where having a little paid financial help can be beneficial 
It can make sure that the plan you start with at the beginning of retirement will last. That's the first time at the point of decumulation. The other time where I really think it helps to have some paid advice is what Mary Beth Franklin and I were talking about today, this idea of trying to figure out when and how to collect your Social Security. This is an incredibly complex decision. As we talked about in the episode, Social Security is not just one thing. It's disability, it's survivorship benefits, as well as a pension. And trying to figure out how to do that, especially if you're married, can really get complicated. So why not pay for a little advice for someone who studies this for a living to make sure you can get it right? And last but not least, I think it makes sense to get some advice, paid or otherwise, when you start deciding what to do with Medicare. So when you qualify for Medicare, there's a big decision. Are you going to choose Medicare Advantage, which basically includes a lot of services above and beyond traditional Medicare, versus do you want to do Medicare and then pay for secondary insurance? This is a really big decision, and there are consequences, especially if you choose Medicare Advantage. It's often very difficult to go from Medicare Advantage to traditional Medicare, whereas I believe it's easier to go from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage. The point being is that these decisions have consequences, they're not as easily reversible as you would think, and you want to make sure that you are managing it correctly. So again, in summary, I think there are these three main junctures where it helps to have financial help. One is when you're at the point of decumulation. One is where you're trying to figure out what to do with Social Security and when. And last but not least, whether you're deciding to go with traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage. These decisions are complicated, and you're going to get various opinions from various experts, and most importantly, when you're reading a book or a blog or listening to an expert who doesn't know your specific situation, often they're giving you very general advice. The problem is with some of these situations, the advice can't be general. It has to be really tailored to you and your personal needs and wants. So I want to make sure people know that on Earn and Invest, I am not against financial advice. Just because I make a podcast in which we talk about our finances and talk about how to use those to live a better life, that doesn't mean I think you need to DIY everything. Granted, it will save you a lot of money if you somewhat DIY your investments, especially when you're young and healthy and have a long trajectory to go. And the reason why is because advisor fees can add up over the years. But that doesn't mean you can't get one-time help or periodic help. Pay out of pocket for it as needed. Pay as you go. And make sure that you're doing what you need to do with your finances. Getting your finances right is generally easy, but it gets more and more complicated as you get older. And they're just a series of important decisions to make. So don't be afraid to ask for help. You do have to educate yourself. You can't just completely throw it in the hands of an expert. But... If you know what you're doing, if you study up and then you get an expert to help you, you can really tailor these complicated situations to fit you best, to fulfill your needs, and most importantly, to allow you to live the rest of your life so that money can be one less thing you worry about. All right, I leave things running just to catch kind of our after show, what we talk about afterwards. Um, You know, it's funny, we have this conversation and it's very, very clear to me, like 
you need experts on this, right? There's no question. And people in the financial independence retire early movement love to think they can do everything themselves. And in a lot of ways, they're young and they're smart and they do the research. But this is one of those cases where having professional help is incredibly helpful. But I always kind of laugh because it's like, okay, we just had the social security conversation. Now let's have the Medicare conversation. <laughs> so talk about like... I'm happy to talk about yeah. that too. Yeah, and, and then throw in that, you know, decumulation conversation on that. And you start realizing that as you get older, this stuff gets harder. Like accumulation is, I, I've said this multiple times in the last few months, but accumulation is the easy thing, man. Figuring out how to decumulate, how to figure out Social Security and Medicare and how to make it all work for you is exhausting. <laughs> and the experts are scratching their heads. They don't know how to do this. And the ones that might know the tax end of things or the rules keep changing. Hey, it yeah. used to be seven and a half. You take your RMD. Now it's 73. It's going to go up to 75. But in the meantime, you can still take charitable qualified distributions at 70 and a half. <laughs> That's the challenges with both tax law and Social Security because they're so complicated and certain deadlines are part of the law and then they change the law, but they've grandfathered people in based on birth years. So they just keep layering things on top. And that's why it's so complicated. I get a chuckle out of the fire movement. It is, it is such an aspirational idea. And I don't know, do you know uh, Grant Sabatier yes, who wrote- Yes, very okay, well. well Grant is my next door neighbor. His mother is my best friend. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. I mean, literally, we've lived a block apart his entire life. He's the same age as my sons. And he has made a wonderful success of this career. But for so many young people in the fire movement, it is a great concept. But your your mind and your emotions change what happens when you have a family well suddenly maybe you don't want to save 50 percent of your paycheck for your retirement because now you want to buy a house or you want to send that kid to college or you know life gets more complicated and more expensive so that's why it's wonderful for people to front load their retirement savings when they can but i think for so many people it is not sustainable at that level it's never going to be wasted but the idea that I can retire at 40 may not be a reality if you're going to live this more traditional life of family, children, house, college. Those are all expensive things. Yeah, what I think has evolved and what I think true the message is financial independence is this wonderful thing, especially so that you can then maybe start concentrating on the work you love as opposed to the work you think you have to do, right? And so for a lot of us, uh, I think the idea of retiring is just, it's silly, right? Because most of us still have stuff we want to do. We're kind mm -hmm. of, you know, young and thoughtful and aspirational in so many parts of our life. The idea of not doing some kind of work doesn't make sense. But to be freed from this idea that you have to do work maybe you don't like, or you have to be employed in situations you don't like, or you have to work hours you don't like. I think that really is now what speaks to people as the FIRE movement has evolved into what I would just call the financial independence movement, which has moved mm -hmm. much farther away. And I think there's some real realization there about, about quality of life and about, about the things you're talking about. Like, you know, we don't talk about how 
expenses in lots of ways come up that you're just not expecting. And it's really easy when you're 30 or 40 to modify your life to deal with those. But when you get to 50 and 60 and 70 and there are other things going on and there's kids and grandkids and other people to support, your ability to modify is not as easy, right? It's not just like, okay, I'll just pull back or I'll just do a few more things myself or not always possible. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, I think the realization is there. I, I actually believe the fire movement has evolved in a lot of ways. And that a lot of people now at the forefront of the movement are a much more thoughtful about enjoying life today as opposed to being, you know, over frugalizing, et cetera, right. as well as realizing that work is a sustaining thing and having income. I mean, the you know, the best thing for your fire plan is to actually continue having income, right? That, Absolutely. that really is it's what I always say about safe withdrawal rates. I don't care what your safe withdrawal rate is if you still have a job. Right. Exactly. And exactly. so you can, and you can, we can argue for 3.5, 3.0, but if you're still making even 50% of your ideal spending, right, that changes the whole equation. Right. And when I say to people, if you're going to do something simple, like a 4% withdrawal roll and you have a million dollars, that's 40,000 the first year. But if you're earning 40,000, that's 40,000 you don't have to tap Yeah, exactly. and it continues to grow. And it's beautiful, right? It's power of compounding. And then, and I, I think one problem with our our group too is people don't want. I, I think social security is a wonderful thing, as as painful as it is, is, right? And we need people like you to make sense of it because it's so hard to translate. But it is a boon, right? We paid for it. We might as well use it. I would even go as far as saying we might as well plan it into our finances and our financial framework, even though I think people are so insecure on what's going to happen with it eventually. Um, but it's kind of a shame not to say, look, there's, there is this boon that's coming and, you know, it should be part of that framework we build. Whereas I think a lot of young people are like, I can't even, I can't consider even putting that into my, you know, retirement plan in the future. And, and what I tell younger people and I tell financial advisors, if you have clients under 55 that are nervous about this, take their estimated benefit. And reduce it by 25%. Yeah. That is not reducing your entire retirement income by 25% because you're going to have other sources of income. But taking the estimated Social Security benefit, reduce that by 25%. Yeah, and then make is, it part of is your that going to make a material difference in your life? If it is, do things now to save more privately that you'll have that in the future. But just don't discount it completely because. If you have Social Security as zero, as opposed to $40,000 a year, that's a lot more money you have to save up front to make up that difference. Yeah. And, 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 and most of us will have, I mean, by the time, especially like if you are 40 or 50, the likelihood is you're going to have a, a, a sizable, if, if you keep working, right? If you, if you don't work for five years and then zero it out, like some people think they can do. But, you know, right. if you work a, a decent number of years, it's going to matter, it's going to have an impact in a very positive way, hopefully. The other the other thing to keep in mind is the way the benefit formula is structured is lower earners over their lifetime get a higher replacement rate than higher income workers. So you're part of the fire movement. Maybe you don't work 35 years. Uh, you know, maybe you work 20 and your average lifetime benefit is going to be relatively low. But because you're considered a low earner, your replacement rate is going to be higher. It may be 40% of your pre-retirement earnings, as opposed to maybe mine might be 25%. Dollar amount, mine 25% is a bigger monthly benefit yeah, yeah. than your 40%, but it's representing a larger replacement rate of your pre-retirement earnings.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.